0: Take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We've been in this chapter for quite a few weeks now. I didn't go back and look at exactly how many, but for quite a few. And we've been looking at how the Holy Spirit works in the life of the believer. And looking at the importance of the Spirit. We we mentioned that chapter 8 has more mentions in that one section uh, of the Holy Spirit than all of Paul's other letters combined, just about. It just, he just concentrates on talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit, and what the Holy Spirit is doing in the life of all believers, all those who truly know Jesus Christ as Lord. And, and that's an important thing to comprehend. That's an important thing to understand because it's, it's, con, uh, it's contingent upon this, you being able to walk in the Christian walk, in the Christian life. If the Holy Spirit does not work within you, you cannot live the Christian life. That's bottom line what Paul is saying here. Paul has been clear to, to show us several things. Last week uh, and the week before we kind of looked at, at four evidences of the Holy Spirit bearing witness in our lives. And, and, and Paul simply said in verse 14 and thir- uh, 13 and 14, "The Spirit leads us into holiness. That is a basic understanding. That when we are in Christ and we are in the Spirit and the Spirit is in us, then the Spirit is working out holiness, godliness, Christ-likeness in our life. That's what it's all about. It's not just about being saved so we get to heaven one day. It's not just about being saved so maybe we will look better to the people around us. It's all about this idea of holiness, godliness, Christ likeness being worked out in our life and that's exactly what the Holy Spirit is doing the Apostle Paul says second evidence of him bearing witness is our relationship to God in our relationship to God he replaces fear with freedom now I mentioned in in talking about that that we're, we're not talking about where the scripture says you know the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God the fear of the Lord that kind of fear is a healthy fear, a standing in awe, a reverence of God that every believer must have. That, but when I'm talking about fear here is a fear of being unadopted. When Paul talks about us being adopted, it's, he said, we don't, now have a, we don't have a fear that God will say, you know, I'm done with you, I'm tired of you, you just haven't been what I thought you might be, and so I'm going to do it with you. He said, the believer does not have that fear. They don't walk around wondering, am I saved today, am I going to be lost tomorrow, or vice versa? You know, what... What am I going to get out of this? Where Where am I going with this? They don't worry with the fear that somehow God is going to unadopt them or put them out of his family. Third evidence of him bearing witness is in our prayers, the Holy Spirit prompts us to call God Father. Abba, Father, indeed, is what Paul said in chapter 8 and in those verses we've looked at in verse 17. He calls us to that he prompts us to say it's more than just a God is our creator idea, even more than just God is our redeemer idea, although those are both very important concepts in Scripture, but it's taking it to a more intimate level. The Spirit works within us to cry out to God as Father. And Jesus said in Matthew, in in the model prayer, pray in this way, our Father, which art in heaven, our Father who is in heaven. We pray in your name. And then fourthly, he he is the first fruits of our heavenly inheritance. We'll talk more about that today and and two weeks from today uh, as we continue in these verses about suffering a little bit. But but what, what Paul is saying is the Holy Spirit is giving us a foretaste of glory, a foretaste of heaven. He's working in our lives right now to help us understand just a little bit about what it's going to be like to be with Christ and be with Him for all of eternity. So so Paul assembles this evidence there in a very concise way in those verses that we've been looking at to say this is the evidence of the Spirit at work in your life. Those are the things that show that indeed you are in Christ. It's not some empty religion. It's not some kind of false faith. It's not some kind of belief in belief or faith in faith but it's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that brings about change, and that's just what we looked at in the last couple of weeks. If you go back to the first half of this chapter, chapter 8, and I want to kind of remind you of a few things that we've looked at over the months behind us in this chapter. You look back over the first half of Romans 8, you see this multiple working of the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, back in verse 2, Paul says, for the law of of the spirit of life, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Paul said, I want you to understand, you've been set free from the bondage of the law. Doesn't mean the law has been eradicated, doesn't mean the law is not still important, but it means you're not living under the law, having to worry about, am I keeping this law? He set you free because you are now a son, you're now a child, you now have a spirit of life. So he's liberated us from the bondage of the law. He also says at the same time he's liberated us from the bondage of the law, he empowers us to fulfill its just requirement. Verse 4, Paul says, In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. He says, You've been freed from the bondage of the law, but by the Spirit being indwelling you, you have now been given the ability, you've been given the power, you've been given the the, uh, the presence of Christ to be able to fulfill the law. Not because you're living it out jot and tittle by point by point, but because Christ has clothed you in His perfect righteousness. And you're able to live it out, you're able to fulfill it because Christ is in you. In verse 5, he says, We now live each day according to the Spirit. And we set our minds on His desires. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. This idea of the Holy Spirit at work in your life changes your thinking. It changes your focus. It changes your affections. It changes your passions. It changes what you count as important in your life. Uh, everything around you is, is sort of relegated to, to temporal importance or unimportance. It's the things that God is promising, His promises, His truth, His, His coming glory that is where our minds are set. Paul said that to the Galatian Christians, said that to the Philippian Christians, he said that to the Colossian Christians. Set your minds on things above. Set your minds where Christ is. Think about Him and glory in Him. Verse 9, Paul tells us that the Spirit lives in us. He is an ever-present person in our lives, dwelling in us in order to give us this power. Not only that, He gives life to our spirits, verse 10 says. And one day He will give life to our bodies too, uh, the passage that pastor todd read earlier the sort of a parallel passage to romans 8 out of 2nd corinthians 2 corinthians chapter 4 the apostle there is telling the corinthian christians listen our bodies are decaying our bodies are giving away now if you're over the age of 25 you ought to be realizing that if you're over the age of 50 you know it to be true if you're over the age of 60 you say oh lord how long can this last I mean, you know, our bodies are decaying. They are giving away. They are wearing out. But, but he gives life to our spirits. He, he gives life to us in the part of us that will live for eternity. He gives life to our spirits. And one day, he's going to resurrect that body. We sang about it this morning. He's going to come again, resurrect the body, and our bodies will be given full life with him and united with our spirit, and we will reign with him forever and ever. Verse 12 tells us that His indwelling obligates us to live a certain way. It obligates us to live a certain way. Not to live desiring the things of the flesh. He said we, know, we owe no obligation to the flesh. We have been set free from that. And now we are obliged to live according to His presence, according to His, his truth, according to the mission that He's given us. Verse 13 says, His power enables us to put to death our body's misdeeds, our, our, uh, the deeds of the flesh. We, put them to, we, we use that old term, mortify, mortification, putting to death the deeds of the flesh that Owen talked about so much. Verse 14 says, He leads us as God's children, and He bears witness with our spirit that that is exactly what we are. He leads us as God's children in that putting to death the deeds of the flesh, in that holiness. And His presence affirms and reaffirms over and over that we are His children. And then in verse 17 and then later on in verse 23, He will talk about Himself. The Holy Spirit Himself is the foretaste of our inheritance of glory. Uh, We won't get to that today fully. We'll get to it a little bit. But in two weeks, when we come back to this chapter, next week's the Lord's Supper. We're going to look at a psalm that deals with suffering next week. But in two weeks, we'll come back to this passage, and we'll really talk about what it means that our inheritance in glory, what that is, and how the Holy Spirit gives us just a foretaste of that, even in this life. So it's the indwelling of the Spirit. It's the indwelling of the Spirit that is the fundamental difference, if you will, between Romans 7 and Romans 8. See, dwelling the spirit that says we've been set free from this we 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 do still struggle with sin in this life but the spirit has made us free and gives us life in the midst of all that and that is what we revel in and what we give in so paul says look with me in verse verse 17 and 18 of chapter 8 after that extensive review He says, well, let's start with verse 16 just to get the full context of the sentence. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. I just mentioned that. We looked at that last week. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory of God that is to be revealed with us. Now, I've got a feeling most of us would have been happy if Paul had left out the second half of verse 17. If Paul had just said, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ Jesus. Why in the world, in the midst of all this glorious truth of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives, in, in the midst of this truth about being put to death, to, to self and made alive in Christ to the point of being made, being sanctified and made holy by Him within our life. Why in the world does Paul come along after all that glorious, beautiful stuff that we can rejoice in, bring up this subject of suffering? Why did he say, if provided we suffer with Him in order that we may be glorified with Him? Why does he do that? I mean, Paul would not fit in very well with 20th, 21st century, uh, 20th too, but 21st century contemporary preaching, especially on television. Suffering is just not something we want to talk about. Suffering, we live in a culture, we live in a world that is very suffering adverse. We don't want to suffer, we don't want to have any pain, we don't want to have any struggle. We just want to be happy. We just want to be fulfilled. We just want to find our perfect being, if you will, and and be fulfilled in that. Find our self-actualization, as as one person put it in, in all that. But folks, we have to recognize that this mortal life is pervasively disappointing. It has been ever since the fall. Now, in the garden before the fall, everything was pretty pretty good. No, no, everything was perfect before the fall. Paul, uh, Adam and Eve in the garden, when they were there, they just they had all the joys of walking with God. They had all the joys of, of their every need being met, not having a want for anything. They, they lived in the midst of paradise, paradise in its absolute perfection. But in this life, post-fall, after the fall, we recognize that, quite honestly, it can be very disappointing. It can be very much a struggle. Now, there are two ways that struggle presents itself. One is it presents itself as a, uh, uh, you know, just natural things that happen: sickness, death, grief, uh, pain, accidents. We can go on and on with with things that cause us to suffer in this life and we suffer sometimes agonizingly over those things there's another type of suffering that we're not going to really deal with today but we'll get to in two weeks and that is a suffering for the gospel a suffering for the sake of Christ a suffering because of of our faithfulness and because of our because of our testimony Uh, that there's a suffering. Some of it is overt, some of it is covert. But there's suffering, there's disappointment in all of this life. Bernard of Clairvaux said, From the best bliss this earth imparts, we turn unfulfilled to thee again. Over 500 years ago. He he said, you know, we, we get all that the earth has to offer, all that it imparts, but it does, not find, it does not give fulfillment. It does not satisfy. And ultimately, we have to turn again to you, O oh Lord. We have to turn again to you. So, so why do we feel disappointed? Why do we feel unfulfilled? I would present to you this morning this thesis that we, we were made for something better than this life we were made for something better from from this life and and deep inside all of us know that even the unbeliever knows that that there is something that's better this is not our best life now okay understand that it's really not uh, and, and our best life is yet to come in glory with Him. And a believer understands that. But there's something deep within inside everybody that longs for more. Uh, you know, even when we see the world doesn't satisfy, we, we know there's something better out there. And I believe this is the reason. Here's my thesis This life is not meant to satisfy, but it's meant to arouse us with a passion for the solid joys and lasting treasures of God's presence. This life is not meant to satisfy us. God didn't put us here and say, now be satisfied with what you can accomplish, be satisfied with what you can accumulate, be satisfied with with what you can get in this life. But rather that that we have in this life is meant to kindle in us a passion, arouse in us a passion For the joy that can only be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Can only be found in seeking Him. Can only be found in knowing Him. And when that hope begins to resonate in our hearts, when our hearts are lifted up beyond this present evil age, the transformation begins. When we look to Him, we turn our faces toward Him. When we seek to know Him more than we seek to know and be known in this world. I think that's what Paul is saying here. When he says, listen, we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We are children of God. We have been given something very special, and that heir will inherit at the right time, but it's what we're to long for. It's what we're to have a passion for. Suffering happens in this world. Jesus talked about that. Matter of fact, In John 15, we've kind of referred to that before but in John 15 when he said you know and this gets to the second type of suffering but he says you know if the world loved me they would love you but they hated me so they're going to hate you and so if I suffered in this world is the servant more great is the servant greater than the than the master if the master suffered does the servant get exempt from that he said no not at all you live in a fallen world suffering will be a reality there was one point in in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 13, you don't have to turn there, but, but where Jesus was meeting with, with some people and they were talking about it. And, and it says, Luke says, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. These were Jewish people. They were offering sacrifices to to Yahweh in the temple and they were offering these blood sacrifices and and Pilate came in and murdered them. His troops did and murdered them and with the blood of the sacrifice mingled their blood and and let it flow with the sacrificial blood. And they, they told Jesus about that. What a horrible thing it was. And Jesus answered them and said, Do you think that these Chaldeans, whose blood was shed, were worse sinners than all other Chaldeans because they suffered in this way? Do you think these Chaldeans were punished by God because they were greater sinners than Chaldeans who weren't even at the temple worshiping but who lived? Jesus said, no. And and I tell you this, unless you repent you will all likewise perish. Jesus went on and said, How about those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I'll tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What is Jesus saying in that? Can you imagine being, just having a nice conversation with Jesus and, and you bring up the fact that these people have been killed in, in a horrible way while they were worshiping and, and Jesus says these things about, well, the Chaldeans, were they worse than the other Chaldeans? No. And he said, well, what about these on whom the tower fell? Were they worse than all the other people in Jerusalem? The answer was no. I think Jesus was saying to those who were standing around, I think he says this to you and me a lot. You're asking the wrong question. You're asking the wrong question. The question should have been by these people, why did that happen to them and not to me? I I deserve that judgment just as much as they did. Why did that happen to them and not to me? And and I think a lot of times in our own life, we we ask the question, why, Lord? And that's okay. But when we change that question to why me, Lord, or why we turn our faith question into an accusation toward God. Why have you let me have, have this happen in my life? Why have I been so mistreated? Why have I gotten this when somebody else didn't get it? Jesus said many times you just answer, you ask the wrong questions. said the same thing in John 9. You remember that story? We, we studied John several years ago and went through the whole John. We got to John chapter 9. And as he passed with his disciples, he saw a man that was blind from birth, sitting there by the pool, praying that somehow someone could get him in the pool so he could be healed, he would hope, from his blindness. And they passed by and they saw this man. And his disciples looked at him and, with a serious and sincere question said, Rabbi, who sinned to make this man blind from birth? Was it him or was it his parents that he was born blind? Jesus looked at him and answered and said, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And having said these things, he spit on the ground, made a mud, uh, mud uh, pack with a saliva, and he anointed the man's eyes and told him to go wash in the pool of Siloam, and he was healed. The glory of God, meeting the criteria that Isaiah said would be one of the criteria, the main criteria of the Messiah. He would give sight to the blind, both physically and spiritually. And the disciples looked at him and said, well, man, why, did he, why is he blind? Did he sin before he was ever even born? Or did his parents sin and thus he got this punishment because his parents sin?" I want to make one thing perfectly clear here. All suffering is a result of sin, but there's not always a direct correlation between a sin and suffering. If you abuse your body with drugs, if you abuse your body with alcohol, if you abuse your body with wanton pleasures, I want you to know there will be a consequence Your body will break down in ways that will cause tremendous health problems. I've seen friends do that. I've seen family do that. And and it breaks my heart because there's a direct correlation. If you do do things to destroy this temple, it will be destroyed. But all all, all suffering is a result of sin in a general sense from the fall. Before the fall, there was no suffering. Think about Job. The entire book of Job is written about this man. We studied it in 2016. We, we talked about Job who was called the most righteous man that ever lived and here he is suffering, loses all his family, loses all his farm, loses all his cattle, loses everything he has and he cries out to God, breaks his, rips his clothes and sits in ashes and, and, and basically asks the question, Lord, why is this happening? He didn't say, why is this happening to me? Why is this happening? And all of his friends made the clear assumption, well, Job, it must be because you have done some grievous sin in the sight of God, and God is now punishing you for that sin. But as you go through the book of Job, you realize that's not the case. Job comes to the point where he sits in the ashes and tears his clothes, and he he weeps, and he wails, and he hurts, and he's in pain. And he says, you know, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. I don't understand this. Why this has happened to me in my life is a mystery to me, but I know I'm no better than anybody else, Job would say. And and I know that I've trusted in God, and I've put my faith and my trust in him, and that is where it will stay. So it comes back to the question, why is no sin? Struggling with that is no sin. But to say, why me? Is problematic because Jesus would say why not you why not me why 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 are we any better do we think than a thousand other people or a million other people that are going through pain and suffering even greater than we are suffering is always going to have to be dealt with now I'll tell you the world culture paganism deals with it in several different ways that are not christian ways one way they deal with it is what would be considered the the docetic view of suffering that basically denies its reality it's kind of the example of of the christian scientist religion that says pain is just in your mind suffering is just a matter of your thinking that that there is no such thing as pain. There's no such thing as real suffering. That, that you just, you just got to clear your mind and, and just think better things. You've got you've to make yourself feel better even in the midst of it. And they just deny that it actually exists. You know people like that. They're going through difficult times and they just try to put it aside. We're just, gonna, we're just, gonna, we're just not going to think about it and surely it will go away. It's not the Christian way of dealing with suffering and pain. Or there's the stoic view. The stoic view of suffering just sees man as a victim of impersonal forces. It's just the way things are going to be. It's just karma. It's just you know, something like that that, that says, well, I, I don't think I like it, but I'm just going to be stoic. I'm going to have a stiff upper lip. Just deal with it. Don't let it get to you. And you know people like that who they're, they're dying inside, and they're hurting inside, and they're, they're miserable, but they're, they're determined to show a good front. They're determined to, to look like everything is just fine. It's a stoic view. It's not a Christian view. Christians grieve, and, and God even encourages, them, encourages us to grieve in the midst of pain, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of grief. Grieve, cry. I say that at just about every funeral I ever do. I say to the family and to to loved ones that are there, crying is not wrong. That is God's gift to you to be able to deal with it. It's a defense mechanism to some degree in the midst of your grief. Don't be afraid to cry. Don't be afraid to express that grief. Don't act like there's really nothing going on. And then perhaps the way most in our culture today try to deal with suffering and pain is what would be the hedonistic view the hedonistic view of suffering tries to counteract pain and suffering by maximizing pleasure it's all about me it's all, I, I don't want to suffer, I don't want to have pain, and so I'm just going to get all the pleasure I can. It's, it's the type of person who tries to drown their sorrows in, in, in what the phrase goes, what, wine, women, and song. Just go out and party and act like nothing's wrong. Numb your senses, numb your, your, your understanding by, by deadening them in any way you can, just so that you'll feel good even if just for a moment. But that quickly passes away. That quickly becomes ineffective. I heard R.C. Sproul say one time, "You you can only endure so many hangovers before you realize this ain't getting it. Hedonistic ways to try and minimize pain by maximizing pleasure is not the answer. Paul says, here's the answer. Looking forward. Understanding who you are. Yes, we will suffer. We will suffer from natural things like we've been talking about. We will suffer because we live in a fallen world. We will suffer because our bodies are breaking down and are wearing out we will suffer because others will hurt us and disappoint us we will suffer because we will lose things in this life whether it be monetary things or whether it be relationship things yes we will suffer in this life and if you only look to the loss paul says you don't understand the gift you've been given if you only look to the loss if you only bemoan what I don't have anymore, if you only think about, that wasn't fair to me to lose that, you will never, ever find satisfaction in Christ. Which is where your satisfaction is to be found. Which is where your satisfaction is to be looked for. You know, so many of us, we we try to find satisfaction everywhere in the world and maybe finally at some point we come to say, okay, I can't find, like uh, Bernard said, you know, I, I can't find it, so I turn to you. Maybe that's how we do it so often. We try to find it everywhere else and then we turn to Christ. But let me tell you something. Paul is saying the greatest antidote to suffering in your life The greatest antidote to suffering and pain and sadness in your life is seeking Him. Seeking Him. Not seeking more of what you've lost. Not saying, man, if I could just get that back, everything would be great. Great. It's not blaming everybody else around you for what has happened to you, although there may have some fault in some of those folks. But if you focus on that, your focus is not on Christ. And Paul is saying here, listen, we are going to suffer. As Christians, we are going to suffer. We'll get into some of it later. And and, and I want you to understand, the only only solution to suffering, the only solution, Right response to suffering is recognizing that you are a child of God, an heir of God, and fellow heirs with Christ Jesus. And then Paul says, when you think about that in verse 18, I consider, and when I think about who I am in Christ, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us, to us, in us, through us, by Him in our lives. That's why I titled this Suffering, The Path to Incomparable Glory. If you don't suffer any, and I realize we're talking about degrees here. Some of you suffered greatly. Some of you suffered mildly. I look at my life and think I've really suffered mildly to a great extent. It's not because I'm good or better than somebody else. It's just for whatever reason. God has graced me that way. But I realize there's, there's different levels. But if your suffering is light and you say, hey, I can deal with this because I've got all this stuff. Then you've missed the whole point. Suffering is a teacher. Suffering is a like the law, a tutor. It's to point us to coming to the fact, coming to the place of saying with the psalmist, Lord, what have I I in heaven but you? And on earth, I desire nothing but you. See, that really is a normal Christian life. Normal being defined by scripture. So Paul says... Don't don't try to act like it's not there. Don't try to to be hedonistic in it and try to drown it out with other pleasure and kind of balance it off somehow so you'll forget the, the struggling. Don't try to deal with it in a way that says, I just won't admit that it's there. But go to Him. Run to Him. Flee to Him. Ask Him to deal with you and show you that He's the greatest treasure you have, greater far than anything you've got on this earth. And He's with you now. And He's in you now. And He's working for His glory and for your good in your life. We will get to verse 28. But there's a lot to understand before we get there. Where's your satisfaction? Where's your trust? Where's your hope? Where do you turn when things aren't like you think they should be? Do you turn to God in anger and question and accusation? You turn to Him in trust and faith and say, Lord, I don't understand this but I ask you to use it in my life to draw me closer to you. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In two weeks, we're going to unpack all of that. Let's pray together.